The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Morgan Hill Bible Church. Before we jump into the sermon today, I want to give you a quick financial update um, from our church. We are already over a third of the way through our fiscal year. We start July 1 here um, with the end of the calendar you're approaching. We are financially, like one of our elders likes to put it, having to continue to rely on God to provide. It's the way he likes to put it. I'm like, I like the optimism and the faithfulness. My view is often more skeptical than that, but that's why I have elders to help keep me in line. Um, Hey, there's so much exciting things happening, and I first off, I just want to say thank you, because I know in this room, um, and even those watching, there are so many who so faithfully and regularly and generously give financially to our church, and if it weren't for you, we could not exist and do the things that we feel God has called us to do. But there are many um, who are newer to our church, maybe who you've never leaned into that side of giving, whether here at our church or just ever. Um, One of the things that I've been looking at is that oftentimes when churches have attendance increase, giving is the last thing if they're reaching people who aren't just other Christians but are coming back to faith or or new into Christianity. And I just want to encourage you, if you've never given that part of your life to Jesus and you're a follower of God, just to, to trust him and to pray and to ask what it is that God would have from you. I know if you're newer around here, you're probably thinking, well, there's the pastor talking about money again. Of course he wants our money. When When I think of When it comes to giving, I I was reflecting this last week in Philippians chapter four, where the apostle Paul, when encouraging that church about their giving and their donations to him, says that I I want you to do this. He says, not for the gift that I will receive, but for the fruit that will increase on your behalf. And what he's saying is this, is that when you give, my, my motivation as a pastor and wanting you to give isn't just so that we can meet budget or pay salaries or keep the lights on. Those are great things. We want to do that. But primarily is the things that you will see God do in your life when you surrender that area to him that you won't see if you hold on to your money as your own. But when you start to worship him with even that area of your life, you'll see fruit increase in your life that isn't possible if you don't worship him with that area otherwise. And so I just want to say, if you've never given or it's been a long time since you have is the year end is coming. A lot of people make donations at the end of the year just to faithfully pray about what God would have you do. And thank you for your help and participation in what God is doing here at Morgan Hill Bible Church. Well, we are in our second week of our series, More Than a Label, looking at salvation and the multiple impacts that it has across all areas of our life. And this morning, our, par- our primary focus is on the, uh, the central event of salvation, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to spend our time this morning looking at the cross and thinking of the accomplishments that are true in our lives because of what Jesus has done for us. You can almost picture the scene back in those days. It's a busy holiday season. The town, which is normally busy, has been packed full of family visiting, of tourists in. There's a holiday upcoming, so everyone's out and about getting their preparations for the meal and the celebration and all that is to come, making sure they have all of their supplies before the holiday itself. It sounds like it could be describing Costco this afternoon. I'm not. I'm actually describing the feeling that would have been true in the city of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 33. It was Friday, April 3rd. 
But it was a Friday unlike any other day in human history because while thousands of people were in and out of the city getting those preparations ready for the Passover celebration that was to come, somewhere just outside the city walls, the Roman rulers were holding a crucifixion. And we know that there were at least three men who were being crucified right outside the gates along that road. And one of them was a man named Jesus. And the people who were walking by on the road, certainly thousands of people saw him over the hours he hung on the cross that day, may not have realized, probably didn't, that they were eyewitnesses to the central event of all of human history that was taking place that day. And that is the day that Jesus died on the cross for us. See, the crucifixion of Jesus is the central event of human history. And how we speak about the cross today is very different than how they would have understood and thought about the cross 2,000 years ago. See, when we think and talk of the cross today, everyone knows you're talking in religious language. And we think of religious words and religious terms when we think of the cross and crucifixion. But 2,000 years ago, it was certainly not so. The cross was a Roman torture device, those oppressive Romans who were ruling over them. And when the Romans would crucify people, it's not just that they didn't know how to kill people. They were excellent at killing people. They knew how to kill people. So why did they crucify people then in such a horrible and prolonged death? Well, there were two primary reasons that crucifixion was done by the Romans. First was it was an extremely shameful experience to have to be crucified. You were crucified naked in a public place. And it was Rome's way of saying, hey, if you mess with us, this is what happens to you. You may have seen pictures and images of Jesus up on a hill far, far away on the cross, way up there. You can almost see him. No, Jesus would have been crucified right by a busy street. He, people would have seen him. He would have heard the taunts and the jeers and the comments of every person walking by. It was meant to be a public spectacle to try and get people under their oppression to not rebel, to stay, and it was a shameful experience for any person crucified. It also was done in that way to inflict great pain on those who were being crucified. The word excruciating itself comes from the Latin of the cross, literally meaning great pain of the cross is excruciating pain. That it wasn't just like a way to chop off someone's head or to kill them quickly as they often would have done in other settings, but to make them suffer for hours, sometimes for days at a time before finally succumbing to death. And as Jesus hung and ultimately died on that cross many years ago, there were so many things that were accomplished for you and for me. I was reading a book this week, and one of the chapters, no joke, was the 20 things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Don't worry, I only picked three. Some of you are like, he has a 20-point outline this morning? No, no, no. We will get to lunch. Don't worry. Three, three things that were accomplished by Jesus on the cross, no, by no means exhaustive, but, but a sample look at what was accomplished for us on the cross. First is this, is that on the cross, evil was defeated. On the cross, evil was defeated, that the satanic rulers, the satanic forces that are in play in our world were defeated and have their defeat because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter two says this, starting at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, we know there that the rulers and authorities, they're not referring to Roman rulers. They're not referring to the Jewish rulers at the time. But we know this both in the rest of the book of Colossians as well as from looking at Ephesians, which was the book that went along with it. That rulers and authorities are talking about the demonic spiritual realm, evil spiritual forces. And look at that again, that it was on the cross that he disarmed the spiritual, the wicked forces of this world, and he put them to open shame, God did, by trampling over them in Jesus Christ on the cross. Hebrews 2 puts it this way. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, this is talking about Jesus, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See that, that Jesus on the cross through his death, one of the missions of God was to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. See, the cross is the sign of victory, of Jesus' superiority and victory over every other spiritual force that exists in the world. Now, this aspect of the cross, of being the victory over dark things of the spiritual realm, is often neglected in all of the Western world, and especially, I think, in the U.S. today. And there's two reasons why we, we so often, when we think of the cross, we don't think of the cross as Jesus defeating evil. And one of them is that we just in our world have an overall neglect of the spiritual realm in our world today, right? If you're in the Western world, we're in the post-enlightenment area, we're materialistic, and we just largely ignore that that at all exists or has any influence in our lives, even though it is very real and very prevalent. But if you've ever traveled to or maybe some of you come from areas of the world that, that acknowledge and readily see the spiritual realm and the significance that it plays. This is not downplayed there in what Jesus did on the cross. I've had the ability to travel and to speak in the Caribbean before. I've been able to go to Africa and preach in a country there before. And this idea that Jesus is over every spiritual force is prevalent for them there, where spiritual warfare is very much an acknowledged thing in their world. That on the cross, Jesus has defeated evil, putting them to shame, disarming their power by what he has accomplished on the cross. A second reason why this is often neglected in the U.S. church is, let's just be honest, for a lot of us, our vision of the Christian life is far too individualistic. And when we think of what Jesus came to do, it, the first thing we think about is, well, he came for me. And don't, don't get me wrong, we're going to get there. What God did on the cross is profoundly personal, but it's not just about you. All right, what God did on the cross is profoundly personal and has huge implications on your life, but it wasn't just about you. God, the goal of God in coming to save not just individuals, but God came to restore and to redeem all of his creation, of which you are certainly a huge part. Romans 8 says this, that the creation itself looking forward one day will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, when you place your faith in Jesus and become a follower of him, we now, it's not just that you, you die one day and go to heaven, and this is just this individualistic thing between you and God, but you are now part of God's mission and plan of what he's doing to redeem and to restore all of creation back to its original intent and purposes. 
See, that was why man was made to begin with back in the beginning of Genesis, not to reign with God in heaven, but to rule and reign here on earth is what God has called us to. And when we place our faith in Jesus, God calls us into this participation of what he's doing in the whole world. See, the cross is seen as a sign of victory. The cross should be seen as a sign of victory. Sometimes, and I've been guilty of this myself for sure, sometimes we can view the cross either, either in how we think about it, sometimes even in the language in which we talk about it. That the cross was like this huge loss, it was a defeat, it was a huge blow, but then the resurrection on Sunday turned it all around. And it was like this big surprise that no one saw coming. Now we can never disassociate the one from the other, right? The cross and the resurrection always go hand in hand. But to give you a sports analogy, if you've been here for a while, you know I, I like sports a lot. So the sports analogy that I always think is this way, like, well, the, the, the cross is like the first half and Jesus' team was down really big. And then God came in at halftime, gave Jesus a really good pep talk, boom, resurrection, come back. You're like, oh wow, that was looking really bad. Thank goodness the resurrection turned it all around. The cross is not a loss that's reversed by the resurrection. The cross is a victory that's fully revealed at the resurrection. The cross is victory. You just don't understand it in its significance until the resurrection happens. It's not like, oh no, the cross. Thank goodness the resurrection. It's how amazing the cross, how amazing the resurrection as well. The resurrection enlightens the cross, but it's not as if the cross is this loss. It's a victory that we just don't fully understand outside of what the resurrection is. Notice that as we read in those passages that it's through Jesus's death it's through what he accomplished on the cross that those powers are disarmed and lose their power and authority over us. This can have profound significance for us today. See, since Satan, since, since through the cross, Satan has been put to shame, his power has been disarmed by God, we should never fall under shame from Satan's accusations to us because he should have no power over the life of the believer any longer because he's been disarmed by God on the cross. See, Colossians ties these two things together. Again, in Colossians 2, it says, he disarmed the rulers, authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Then the next verse says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. This idea of passing judgment could also be bring accusation or bring criticism against you. And the no one is not just referring to other people, but to spiritual forces as well is that, that we should not listen, give a foothold to the accusations of Satan in our lives because Satan has been disarmed. He has no power over our life because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. But a lot of us at times in our lives listen to the lies of Satan. He's the father of lies. And we believe the accusations that he brings him and give him power in our lives that he has no right to have. What do these accusations sound like? common one that I've heard from, uh, from people before is, well, my, my past defines my future. And we say this in ways, well, if, if you knew what I did before I came to Jesus, you would see that God doesn't really have a lot that he can do through me. Or it'd be, hey, if you could only see what my life has been like following Jesus, the train wreck, how bad I followed him, you would know that God can't really use me into the future. That's a lie from Satan. Your past in God has no impact on how God can use you in the future. It does not determine that. That's an accusation that you would believe. Another lie that he often tells people is he would love to isolate us. And so if you believe a lie that's something in your life no one else struggles with, 
If there's something in your life that you're like, no one else would understand what I'm going through, that's, that's a lie from Satan to try and isolate you away from the community of believers, from others. He often gives us accusations and lies for us to justify our own sin, right? The sin of, of well, it's, it's private, so it's okay. It doesn't hurt other people, and so it's okay. Or the one, how about this one? You've done this, I know I have. Um, one more time, I'll do this, and then I'll change, right? Just this last time, I'll sin, and then I'll change after that. Or the lie that I think we've all felt and believed in our hearts at some point is, man, I'll, I'll never be free from this. I could never have victory over this in my life. Those are all lies from Satan who has no power over the life of the believer any longer. See, any thought that would isolate, shame, or discourage you is not from God. That's an accusation that is no grounds in your life anymore. Why? Because his power has been upset by the cross and he has no power over the life of the believer any longer because of what God has done for us. So evil was defeated on the cross. The second thing we're gonna look at that, that was accomplished on the cross is secondly, that wrath was satisfied. That wrath was satisfied. Now, some of you, perhaps uh, have a strong reaction to this word wrath because it hasn't been well used, well defined in your world. It can often seem like God is this really angry old man up in heaven. He's like an angry school teacher looking for kids to get in trouble. And you just don't wanna be one of those kids that he has to figure out. Like, why is God always so angry at everyone when we see this word, the wrath of God? Well, let, let me try and flesh out for you scripturally why God's response towards sin is one of wrath, of, of punishment towards sin. See, we first off look at scripture and see that every single one of us is born in sin and we fall under the wrath of God. Romans 1 puts it this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, wrath is the proper response of a holy, just, and loving God towards wickedness and evil. I'll say it again. Wrath is the proper response of a holy, just, and loving God toward wickedness and evil. See, we can't disconnect the attributes of God from his action of wrath towards sin. See, God is a holy God. What we mean by holy is, is that he is perfectly righteous. When you think of the morality of God and his purity, don't think of like, wow, he's like me, just a little bit better. No, literally, holy means he is completely set apart. He, he's so far beyond our capacity for understanding his holiness that he is totally pure, and because of his purity, sin cannot enter into his presence, that he can have nothing to do with it. And so that is the dilemma, is how does sinful people like me and like you have a presence, have a relationship, come back into unity with the God of the universe? He's a holy God. He's also a just God. The God is a God of justice, meaning that because God is just, he cannot allow wickedness to go unpunished. Something has to be done of all the wickedness and evil and sin in the world. Something has to be done because of the wickedness, sin, and evil in my life and in your life. 
We, we've all sensed this before. We have this innate sense of justice because we're made in the image of God. That when you see someone who's done something guilty, done something wrong, get off with no punishment, something within you cries out, that's not right. That can't be just, that that would happen and they would have no punishment for it. God has to punish sin because he's a just God. But he's also a loving God, meaning he's not just throwing around wrath randomly at people, but, but his punishment is always one done in love. See, the wrath of God exists because sin exists. The wrath of God exists because sin exists. Wrath is not an attribute of God. But the wrath of God exists because sin exists and because he also is holy, just, and loving. Therefore, wrath is his response to sin. And we look forward today, one day, when sin will be removed and the wrath of God won't ever be revealed again against sin. But until that time, the wrath of God is against sin. Sin must be punished by God because of who he is. And so how is sin dealt with since we are broken, sinful people? Well, the Old Testament already starts to give us a precursor as to what Jesus is going to do for us. In Leviticus, the beginning of the first seven or eight chapters of Leviticus, it's crucial to our understanding of salvation when it starts to introduce these offerings and these sacrifices. And many of the sacrifices that were made in the, in the beginning of Leviticus are said to be offerings that make atonement between man and God. Although one pastor put it, when you think of atonement, which is a theological word, just think of at one with God. That these offerings were one, that there was a disunity because of our sin, but when the offering was made, unity was restored, that mankind was at one with God again. But offerings had to continually be made because mankind continued to sin. These offerings culminated in what was called the Day of Atonement. We see this in Leviticus 16, which is still celebrated to this day. And on the day of atonement, there were two goats and the first one was sacrificed and the blood of the goat was sprinkled at different places throughout the temple or tabernacle. The second goat was sent into the wilderness to bear the iniquities of the, of the people's sin. That was called the scapegoat from which we get the term still to this day. But the first one, after he was killed, the blood was sprinkled in different places. And one of the places that the blood was sprinkled on is in the Holy of Holies, in the most holy place. It was sprinkled on the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled. And when it was sprinkled on the mercy seat where God's presence was, it was now mankind was forgiven because of the blood that was sprinkled there. That word for mercy seat is translated into the New Testament as the word we have propitiation. Propitiation, a sacrifice that will turn away God's wrath because of the blood. And we see this in Hebrews twice in 1 John, and we see it again in Romans 3, from which I'll read for us. It says this, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a offering, a sacrifice to take God's wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So on the cross, the wrath of God, God's righteous response that sin has to be punished. Sin must be punished for a holy God to have a relationship with people. How was this accomplished? On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God that should have gone towards me and towards you. He took the wrath of God so that you and I could know him. That on the cross, Jesus took our wrath. See, 
or the wrath of God, excuse me. See, on, on the cross, when it comes to thinking about the crucifixion, so often, especially if you're of my generation who was, was raised with the movie The Passion of the Christ, which showed the gruesome physical nature of what a crucifixion would have been like for Jesus, we often, when we think of the pain of the cross, our minds go first to the physical beatings of Jesus. And that movie's done some good in that it's given us new light and, and perspective on it. And it certainly would have been far beyond anything that most, if not all of us, have ever experienced as far as physical pain. But the greatest pain that Jesus experienced on the cross wasn't a physical pain. It was when on the cross, the sin of the world and God's response towards that sin was thrust upon him for him to carry. See, he alone could be that sacrifice, the one who would take the wrath of God because he's the only one who's perfect. Just as in the Old Testament, the sacrifices that they had had to be from an unblemished animal, Jesus lived a perfect life. And so he's the only one who is qualified to represent us, to be the one to take on the sacrifice for sin. See, last week when Anthony did the great message talking about grace being this unmerited favor of God towards us, maybe you were asking yourself, well, well what, how can God do that? How can God just take sin? Does he like wave a wand and it's gone? Like what happens to all of this sin? How can God just give us grace? What happened to the sin and God's response to the sin is it was all placed on Jesus on the cross. Is that the penalty and the punishment for our sin was given to him. The penalty has been paid. As Romans 5 puts it, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Because we've been made right with what Jesus has done, we don't have to live in fear of the wrath of God coming for my life. Why? Because Jesus has already taken it on him. See, one of the profound implications that this can have on our lives is when we understand this, if you are a follower of Jesus, I can promise you this this morning, that God will never punish you for your sins. If you're a follower of Jesus, God will never punish you for your sins. Now, I'm not saying there won't be earthly consequences to your sins, right? There are still consequences to your actions. So yes, that still happens. I'm not saying that if you're a follower of Jesus, your life will just be great and there'll be no difficulty, no challenges. No, because the Bible also teaches us that God disciplines those whom he loves. So yes, there will be hardships. There'll be discipline that God brings into our lives. But God will never punish us for our sins because the punishment for your sin has already been taken care of by Jesus on the cross, and sometimes when we go through hardship in life, we can start to, and even I've been guilty of this certainly at times in my life, start to think, is God doing this to punish me for my sin? If you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is always no. There's no punishment left. Jesus already took the whole thing. There's no leftover punishment that now you or I have to take for our sin. All of the punishment for sin was placed on Jesus on the cross that he bore the wrath of God for us there. See, the third thing that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross is that on the cross, your place was taken. On the cross, your place and my place was taken. We call this the idea of, of substitution. And I love that such a profoundly deep theological thing in scripture is conveyed in a word that we use regularly in our language today. So we all understandably, intrinsically get this concept. 
Right from the earliest ages, we have substitute teachers coming in and replacing. We have substitutes in sports who replace someone in a sports team. We substitute something in a recipe. We know what it is. It's something that takes the place of one another. And when we think of the cross, we should never think Jesus deserved to be up there, and we should always think I deserve to be there. That on the cross, I deserve to be there, and Jesus took my place on the cross. 1 Peter 2 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 1 Peter 3 says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, Jesus volunteered to go in your place to the cross. Jesus volunteered to go in your place to the cross for you. That's why John Stott in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, says that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. The essence of sin is man saying, nope, I don't need God. I can put myself in the place of God. I rule. I can tell myself what is right and wrong. I get to determine my life. I'm the center of the universe. It's putting ourselves in the place of God. But salvation is God putting himself in our place and taking what we deserved on himself. See, sometimes, and I've, I've heard this from others, and maybe you have before. I've certainly seen this online when we talk about the wrath of God and Jesus taking our place on the cross and bearing the penalty for our sin that we deserve, an argument that sometimes is put forward by people is, well, isn't that cosmic child abuse? Like, how dare, how dare God? Like, where, how does he get the right to do that to Jesus? Like, why is he so mean that he would inflict that punishment on someone who doesn't deserve it. Like that, that's abuse in our world, right? Like what, what is God doing? That's so crazy. I could never worship a God like that. Well, there's two ways that this idea that, that on the cross, this is some sort of child, co- excuse me, cosmic child ab- abuse, it falls short. And the first one is this, is that when it comes to the cross, Jesus went willingly with full knowledge of what was about to happen. He went willingly with full knowledge of what he was going to walk into. Jesus was not caught off guard when he was nailed to the cross. If you read through the scriptures, he's mentioned this for years in advance of where he is going. He knows what's about to come. And he goes with full knowledge to the cross. This is why in the garden of Gethsemane before, why he is so overcome with sorrow because he knows the pain, the experience that he's about to go into. He's not blissfully thinking, all right, let's get this over with. No, he knows what he's walking into. And yet he chose to do it. In Hebrews, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy is, yes, the the glorification that he has now that he's risen and reigns. But I can't help but think that joy is also that on the cross as he was contemplating and when he went willfully and knowingly, the joy was your name and my name. That he knew you and counted you worth it. And so he went to the cross willfully and knowingly because he loved you that much. That he wanted to go take your place and he wanted to go take my place. So Jesus went 
willingly, with full knowledge of the cross. The second problem that this cosmic child abuse argument has is that it's this idea that God is punishing someone else for our problems. Now here's where this falls short. This is where the doctrine of the Trinity is always so helpful. God doesn't punish someone else for our sin. God himself takes the place for our sin, right? Jesus is God. And so God sees the problem and then God himself offers the solution. It's not as if God finds someone else to take the place. No, God says, this is the problem and I will fix it myself by what I'm about to do. And that Jesus isn't just man on the cross, but Jesus is fully God as he dies for our sins on the cross. Now, what's amazing about this idea of substitution is this, is that Jesus takes our place and then we get to take his place alongside with him in the family of God. And all that we have in the Christian life is because of what Jesus has done for us. Second Corinthians 5 puts it this way, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus takes our sin, gets to what we get, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gets our sin, we get his righteousness. That's the substitution we get instead. Because of the cross, Jesus takes your place and now you are made righteous before God as if you were Jesus himself clothed in his perfection when God looks down and sees you when you trust and believe in him. See, Jesus took our place. He died so that you can have life. He took our sins so that we could be free of the sin in our lives. Jesus has done all that is needed for salvation. The question is, do we believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that, that it's not about your works? It's not about your efforts. It's not about your righteousness. It's not about how hard you try. It's not about your intentions. That you could never do it. You could never, this gap between us and God is far too great for any one of us to ever cross with our own doing. It's only what Jesus has done. That on the cross, he bore our sin. He, he took the wrath of God that should have been ours to bear and he took it upon himself. He defeated death by rising from the dead and when we believe in him, just have faith in what he's done for us, we become children of God. If you've never believed in that, I'd encourage you that may today be that day where you look at the cross and don't just see someone who died, but you look at the cross and see your savior who died for you. The cross should continue to have profound implications for those of us who do believe as well. See, if we ever, if we ever doubt God's love in our life, I know often when circumstances arise around us, we can get frustrated, we can feel forgotten, we can feel alone. And you've probably been there, I have at times in my life, where I've just wanted to shake my fist and cry out, maybe not in a verbal voice, but certainly in my head, God, do you even love me anymore? The answer to that question is always yes when we look at the cross. And if you're here today, you're here struggling, saying, does God love me? Does he know what's happening in my life? I would just say, look to the cross and you'll see the love of God displayed for you. A love that you could never fully question, fully understand either, but so profound, so deep. That it gives us this great security as his followers to know that we are always loved by him. Another implication that the cross has on our life 
Here in the US this week, of course, we get to celebrate Thanksgiving in a few days. And likely for all, or for that, certainly most of us, if not all of us, will gather around tables with others. Maybe some of us have already done that this weekend. And, and we'll share things that we're thankful for, right? Because culture tells us to. Here's the tip, make sure you're one of the first ones to go that way not all the good things are taken when it comes to what you're thankful for. But for a lot of us, maybe Thanksgiving this week, we're looking forward to it. It's gonna be great, we're gonna be a family, we're gonna be with friends, we can't wait. For some of us, we, we're not looking forward to this week. For some of you, maybe around your Thanksgiving table, there's gonna be an empty chair for the first time, or maybe still for the second or the third time, but it still feels like it hurts just as bad as the first. For some of you, there will be someone missing because there's a broken relationship and there will be pain. For some of you, the last season of your life has been so hard that you'll sit down and the question in your mind will be, do I even have anything to be thankful for anymore? And when we look to the cross, the answer is yeah. Because of what Jesus has done for us, no matter how hard this season of life has been for you, no matter what's happened, we always have something to be thankful for. Because when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't earn it, Jesus went to the cross, took the penalty and the punishment for our sin so that we can know God. God, we thank you for what Jesus did for us on our behalf on the cross. God, when we feel alone, abandoned, rejected, when we feel thankless and overwhelmed by the circumstances and challenges and difficulty of life, would you remind us of what you've done for us? Would you bring us back to Jesus on the cross, the greatest display of love ever given? God, for any who are here this morning and who have never placed their faith in you, may today be that day where they recognize that you just didn't die on a cross for people, but you died on a cross for me, for my sin, because you loved me that much. And all you're calling for us to do is to trust you, to believe in what you've done. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.